So if you would, open your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Read that in a moment here. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I uh, can remember some years ago, I was in a season with a church where there was some conflict that we were navigating, and we would frequently attend meetings, leadership meetings, be elders and ministers and deacons. And I remember one elder in particular uh, was fond of saying at the end of some of these rough meetings, he said, just remember, guys, an organization can't rise above its leadership. Now, that's a phrase that really I've heard a lot through the years in a lot of different organizational contexts. And that's, it's, you know, that, and under that view, we kind of see how the, the, the head of an organization, the leader of an organization, kind of creates this ceiling or, in a sense, kind of creates something of the culture that's going to shape the success of the organization. And so here at the end of the baseball season, we're going to see a few firings in the next week, right? Some might be right here in Chicago uh, because of the, the way in which a particular leader might have failed to uh, create the winning culture that they want to have. So there's a pressure then on, on, as we think about leaders, and I, or we talk about the church, talk about the offices of the church, that there's this sense of like a ceiling or the way that a leader might shape a culture of an organization. But there's a flip side to that. I was reading in kind of organizational philosophy, there's this big debate that goes on. Does a, it's almost like a chicken and egg argument where they ask, does a culture create a leader or a leader create the culture? Well, the leader create the culture is what we were just talking about, but there's this other dimension of it, thinking about the way that a culture within an organization can create a particular kind of leader. Um, that, the, that the leader that emerges from within the ranks of a particular organization reflects who we are. We kind of, I hear a lot of that usually angst-ridden discussion every time we select, you know, elect a president, that our president some, becomes something of a reflection of our particular cultural moment. And so we might find ourselves wondering where we are headed, depending on who we elect year in, every four years. But the question um, of, of the way that the church here, as we think about the offices of the, of, of the church, and specifically the office of the elder, the way that the church can have this formative shape or reflect something of our culture, be shaped by the leader or the office of elder. It's this give and take. And that give and take is something I want to invite you into today as we think about the office of elder. Our expectations of our elders will do a lot to shape our church culture in the years to come. And I think that's what's really behind this season here in our church life as we appoint officers, we appoint elders and appoint deacons. In a sense, we are beginning this process of shaping something of this church culture in the months and years to come. 
So we talk about elders. As we went through last week, I appreciate your graces. I went a very long time through this d- discussion of deacons. And I hopefully, if I got anything out of it, maybe I convince you that it can be kind of hard to really wrestle with Scripture and what Scripture has to say uh, and what Scripture does not say. And that's often where the challenges are, what Scripture simply doesn't give us. So we turn to the question of, of elders. What do elders do? And you immediately find, as you open Scripture, some of the same challenges you saw in the challenge of deacons, which is there is no job description given for elders. And as I talked about last week, this really presses us as we think about the silence of Scripture. That, that there is a kind of, I think, something of, of a false myth, a belief held among old Church of Christ folks in the early 19, 1800s, early 19th century at our founding. You read these folks, if you read Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone and Thomas Campbell, and all these guys, brilliant writers, brilliant thinkers, but when you read them talk about church structure, there was a sense, they believed that if we would all just sit down and go back to our Bible and read the Bible again, we would all wind up in the same place, and all churches would be organized the same way. And it just doesn't happen. It's just, and so one, we, we, when we counter the silence of Scripture, we've got to give, one, we've got to give each other a little freedom. And, and we also have to, as we ourselves are trying to use wisdom, that was the link that I tried to describe last week with deacons, that where the Scripture is silent on these things, there's freedom. Where there's freedom, there's, we need to use wisdom. We need to use our heads to figure out what is the best way forward for us. But we also have to extend some grace when we try to understand the way this thing works. It's going to look different from church to church. And where you're going to see that is even just what Scripture does give us about the picture or the office of elder, which is in the names that are given. And it's not just one name, it's several names. Do the names say it all? Do they tell us about what uh, what this position is about? Last week, as we went through deacon, we talked about how deacon is also the word for servant. And that maybe gives us the best insight as we see what it is that deacons are doing in the church. They are serving the church. Now, we're all meant to serve the church. Jesus is considered a servant. So that's not just to say there's a few people that are called to serve. But that vision of what deaconing is driven around that name, serving. Their job is to serve. Well, you got, have three different names, arguably three, maybe even four, depending on your view, that describe what elders do. Three words. The first word is often translated overseer. That's the one that I just read here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, you see that the, the, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, what is the overseer? Where the Greek word is episkopos, and you might hear episcopal in that word. That's what that root is coming from. And it's often translated, probably its older translation would be bishop. Now that's where translation gets hard. Because when you hear bishop, what we often hear in the word bishop is what happened not in the first century of the church, but what happened by about the third century of the church, which was that the office of bishop became this kind of separate entity where there was a single bishop ruling over the church in a particular town and then region. And eventually it evolved where you've got these bishops that are then kind of running the church, and then one of them in Rome says, I'm in charge now, and it gets more complicated. And then you've got, you know... A thousand years of complication in history in the church. But beyond that, that word bishop then becomes a troubled word for us. When we hear bishop, a lot of times we're hearing one person large and in charge of a whole bunch of churches. And that's, you know, there are churches that try to structure it that way, but that's not what's here. Here, that word bishop, or episkopos, or overseer, is applied not to one, but to the many that are uh, over, giving oversight over a particular 
church. And the, the thing that I like about that translation overseer is it gives us a little bit of what the definition really means. When we hear bishop, if we've inherited some church history, we start thinking about kind of person that rules. But here, the, the overseer is the one who is watching over the church. And that's a big theme that's going to come out, hopefully, as you look through this. You're going to see overseer several times, and I think you see it again in Titus. You have the verse 7 in Titus 1.7. I'm going to flip back and forth between 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 today, and I'm going to, a few other verses. But there, the overseer is God's steward. Verse 7 says, that for an overseer, as God's steward must be approached. What is a steward? A steward is one appointed to watch over the king's charge. He's got a king, you have the king, has a kingdom, and the steward is appointed over some piece of the kingdom. That's the overseer, the one who is watching over, uh, the guardian of the church. I like that translation, or that definition. You, you'll find that in the definition of the overseer. The guardian is the one who is the protector. And again, I think that's a theme that comes up over and over in these pictures of what the elders are called to do. But that first word is overseer. That's the one that you have here in Timothy. The second word is elder, the one that we probably more commonly use. Well, what is the elder? The elder is, the, um, the, the word is, is, is presbyter. Actually, that's the word, you know, the Presbyterian church is actually using that word, the Greek word. So the, 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 the word elder comes from the synagogue. Uh, they would have uh, Jewish elders that would actually be in charge of every synagogue. They would actually have oversight over a particular synagogue. So a committee of elders, a group of elders. That was one of the early examples, again, that much of the pattern of Scripture, when we see it laid out for us, there's always multiple elders. There's always a council. There's always a group. One of the, I think, points of wisdom that we glean from Scripture is to have a great deal of distrust of church structures that put authority in a single person. I think that's just one of those themes that emerged again and again in Scripture. But the elder, what is the elder doing? Well, the elder, if you kind of borrow that image from the synagogue, the elder's task is to lead the church, to, um, to, uh, to steer the church, to direct the church. And now we're going to talk more about that here, but I think Timothy is going to link that for us in the ministry of teaching and preaching, and that will happen in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But there's a sense of, of steering the church coming from the, the term elder. The third term, and third and fourth, depending on your view, is the term pastor or shepherd. And where that shows up is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about what are the, the, the foundation of the church. What did God give us in, in the people that are kind of helping create the church for, to be what it is? And it's built on this foundation. Verse 11, he talks about he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, our pastors, and teachers um, to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build, for building up the body of Christ. Now that sense, most scholars will tell you that, that that sense of order is purposeful, that that really is the way the church comes into being, that, that the first ministry, Jesus charges the apostles with, with building up the church. The apostles are then built on this message of the, of the prophets, both prophecy of old, but then we talked about last week, Acts 2, the ministry of prophecy 
for men and women, all these people who are prophesying in the first century is an important piece of the lifeblood of the church in that first century. What does he mean by a term evangelist? Well, it seems this is actually at this point here in 1 Timothy. That's what Timothy is. The book of Titus, that's what Titus is. Paul has raised up both Timothy and Titus as evangelists. What evangelists are doing is going around and establishing churches. They're going town to town, they're preaching the gospel, they're calling people, and as people are responding to the gospel, they are helping establish those churches. And so that work of the evangelist is a kind of traveling work. We might see them as a church planter today, except that, I think it's important to see that what seems to happen in the first century is the evangelist, the church planter, is not staying for 20 years. They're not there for 30 years. They're there establishing the church, calling the elders. Actually, in both Timothy and Titus, it is the evangelist that appoints the elders. And when that appointment is done, then their job is done, except in Timothy's case where he actually seems to stay and it seems to become an elder and something of a pastor in the church. But then you've got this term, pastors and teachers, shepherds and teachers. This is where we get the term pastor from. Um, and that definition of what is a pastor, I think that, that definition just told you. It's a shepherd, the one who is shepherding the church. Now, why do I say pastors and teachers? Well, it's an odd little construction there in the Greek that you got this list, but then you come to pastors and teachers and they are linked it's suggesting that there's this kind of overlap between the two. And there's a big debate, much bigger debate than we need to have today. But there you see a link between the two. Many will say that those are actually referring to the exact same office. I'm not quite sure it's that tight of an overlap. I think there are some teachers there that are not pastors. Um, but all, certainly all shepherds, as we're going to find here in a few minutes, all shepherds are teachers. But that ministry of shepherding the church, guiding the church... That's a pretty significant thing because what it's doing there, when we are describing the work of elder as shepherd, we are describing them in terms that Jesus would say about himself. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd of the church. And when we are appointing people to the office of elder, we are appointing, in a sense, the under-shepherds, those who are serving in that capacity. It's a pretty awesome responsibility. And I think one thing you can emerge, get from that is a sense of just how um, important that role is in the life of the church. One thing I should mention here is in Acts 20, you have uh, the only example that I know of, there may be another that I've overlooked, I think this is the only example in Scripture where all three of those terms are used together, speaking of the same group of people. In Acts 20, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and in verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 17, he speaks about calling the elders of the church to come to him, and then he speaks and gives this speech. Incidentally, this is the same group. This is Ephesus is where Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus here as he's ministering or calling him to deal with the challenges of elders there. So he's charging the elders before he leaves there in Acts 20. And then in verse 28, he says to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The elder is the overseer, is the shepherd. All three are linked together. And those are three descriptions of what the office of elder or overseer or shepherd, we can use any of those terms, they're all biblical terms, uh, of what they're doing. Notice guardian, steering, shepherding, all of this is image of nurturing the faith 
What does an elder do? The elders are guardians of the flock, nurturing the faith of a local congregation. That's what elders are there to do from Scripture. That's best that we can piece together what they're doing. That, um, that sentence, um, I would suggest, maybe sounds different because a lot of times our understanding of church structure really has more to do with modern corporate organizations. We think of elders often as a kind of board of directors. We often think of deacons as a kind of middle management. Biblically, neither of those things are true. And I think we've often got ourselves in trouble when we, the assumptions that we bring to the table are looking for elders to be a board of directors, decision makers, the ones who run the church, and the deacons being the ones that are the middle managers, the ones who are carrying out the orders, and then kind of having their own little organizations that they're having within the church. I don't think either are true. With this week, when we think about elders, what you see from those three images of elders, those three words for elders, overseers, shepherds, that there is a sense of nurturing the faith, guarding the faith. The biggest threat to the faith is, well, spiritual warfare. It's the devil. The biggest threat is false teaching. The biggest threat is a false gospel that the people in your church embrace. That's the challenge, and that's what the elders are there to do. So who should be an elder? What are the qualifications? Another way to ask that. What are the qualifications for an elder? Well, there are several that emerge out of Scripture. And in 1 Timothy 3, we have a description, a list, very similar to what happens starting in verse 8 of deacons. You've got a list of the qualifications of an elder. That list is mirrored in Titus 1. There are two different lists, and they are different. And that should tell us something. Um, this is why we're doing wisdom here. In wisdom literature, you don't have a single exhaustive list. You know, I, I was talking to some folks this morning. I'm, I'm coaching Larry's hockey team this year. And to get on the ice, to be a head coach, I had to go through all this certification. And there's a little checklist of things that I have to do. I have to complete this class and this class and this class, and i got to do this, get my fingerprints taken, all this kind of stuff. And the person that's running the organization can just look at a checklist and just check it off. And at the end of the checklist, they can say, yes, you can be head coach, or no, you cannot be, because I've either complied with this checklist or not. I think that's a checklist, and the beauty of a checklist is it's, it's a bright line test for whether you qualify, but that's not what's happening here. It's harder for us, because what Paul is calling both Timothy and Titus to do is to use their head, is to exercise wisdom and judgment in evaluating a person, and whether they should be an elder in that church. So the lists are going to look a little different. But what are they doing? Where do they lead us? Well, one, the phrase that I'll use to describe an elder, it starts with deacons plus. Now, what do I mean by that? Deacons plus. Well, one, it's that the, the, the list of the qualifications of an elder are quite similar to the deacons in that both of them are focused intensely on character. And I mentioned it last week when we talked through the list of deacons, and I think that's a pretty important piece as we understand these things and interpret what they mean, that they are focusing on character. But we should just pause and recognize how counterintuitive to, that is to us in our day. The character of an elder counts more than the competence of an elder in terms of Scripture. We don't believe that in our day. I mean, I remember back in the last election when we were kind of horrified at these two different choices we had, and when people were saying, I can't believe you're voting for that person, they're terrible. 
And, and then one of the responses I would hear very regularly from Christians, whichever way they were voting, is like, well, we're not voting for a pastor-in-chief. Well, now we are. <laughs> now we're actually trying to qualify a pastor, a shepherd. We're trying to understand who the shepherd is. But what they were saying, and what we've often said in our culture, is say, well, I'm willing to put up with all of the character flaws and all the foibles of my candidate because they support the things that I want done, or because I think there's somebody that can get the job done. At some level, we have a value in our culture that will say, I will celebrate the competence of a person, and I may just overlook their poor character if I really believe they are competent to get the job done. That's, I mean, a big discussion. That's kind of a fab in the fabric of our culture for decades. But that's not here in Scripture when we think about elders and deacons. Character counts. Character is actually at the front and center of what we're looking at when we're trying to understand who should be accepting this role, who should be accepting the office of an elder. What does he say? I mean, one, it's, it, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting piece the way he begins. There's a saying, apparently, that's circulating. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, maybe whoever it is that... that Whichever of you wind up as elders here, that you probably should put that something as like a bumper sticker or something as a label. You remind yourself, this is a noble task. Because it'll get hard. And there's times where you're going to believe it's not really a noble task. What in the world am I doing? But it is a noble task. It is a beautiful thing. It is a good thing that we have uh, people in this position. But if they aspire to it, they desire a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Verse 2. That's the key that guides the whole section. It's the same thing that he says about deacons later. They must be above reproach. It's a sense of their character there. Uh, You have the same thing echoed in Titus. Uh, Verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. That's the guide to the entire logic of everything that follows. Everything that we understand about who these people are is that they are above reproach. They're people of character. And then they go through a list that demonstrate that. Now, there's several that he lists immediately. And he talks about, well, they must be above reproach, the, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Stop right there and just pause and say, one, two, three, four. The last four we can all see as character-type issues. Sobriety, the, they're under control, the relationship with alcohol, for example. They're, they're self-controlled. They're respectable. They offer hospitality. They're welcoming to others. The, the one we've stumbled over is that first one, the husband of one wife. Now, how do we understand that in terms of a person being above reproach? Well, it is not to say that you don't have um, character if you're single or you don't have character if your wife has died, which a lot of times we've interpreted this way. As I mentioned last week with deacons, that phrase literally means the, the man of one woman or the one woman man. And, it, and it's, it's, a, it's a phrase that Paul seems to have coined to describe the kind of person he wants in that culture to be in these offices of elder and deacon. Now, some through the years have said, well, this, this is about polygamy. Um, because there were some examples of that, but that seems to be odd because actually a polygamist would have problems in the church as a whole. What it seems to be directed at, if you look at the real challenge of the Roman culture, the Greco-Roman culture, it was, a, it was the issue of sexual ethics, that men in the Greco-Roman culture did not have the same standard of sexual fidelity expected of them that, um, that Paul is expecting of them in the church. And that goes back to 
arguments you can see in Romans, you can see a pattern throughout Scripture of him really holding, pushing against the Roman culture and saying men are to be loyal to their wives. So I would, the application of that, I would suggest to you, is fidelity is the measure. Now, that may mean that men, you may appoint men who are single as elder or as deacon. You may appoint men who are widowers as elder or deacon. And that is an honest application of this verse if they are practicing fidelity and integrity in their lives. That's that picture of being above reproach in that list. I'm going to skip over the end of verse 2 because something happens there. I'm going to come back to it. But then verse 3, you also see what's kind of common in virtue lists. You have these all over the Greco-Roman culture. Here's what a virtuous person looks like. They're this way. here. They give all these lists of these attributes. And they say, well, they're not like this, the negatives. They're not a drunkard. They're not violent, but gentle. They're not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. In fact, what's interesting is you look at these lists, they're actually quite similar to the virtue list that would have happened in Greco-Roman culture. For the most part, with a few exceptions, mainly a higher standard of sexual ethics, um, that they, the person that is being appointed to the office of elder, or the people that are being appointed to the office of deacon in the church here, would be respectable people in their community. There's a sense of mission there. They're actually, Paul is looking outward at the surrounding culture to say, we want to put forward people in these positions that can be respectable in their community. It's kind of an interesting picture, and I think that should be a guide to us as we understand this picture. So you have these positives, you have a negative. Verse 4, you've got a picture of his household. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So there's this sense of the character that's reflected in their house. If they have children, again, as I talked through last week, this is not a checklist where you say, well, do they have kids? Do they have more than one kid? And I've seen that. That's a, if you're doing a kind of a checklist interpretation, well, you've got to have two kids, and then you're going to evaluate them while they're in the home. Once they're out of the home, you don't really qualify to be a deacon or elder anymore because you don't have a household by this definition. You can spin yourselves in circles if you go through this checklist mentality. But a more logical thing, wisdom is you look at the character of how they're leading their house and whatever that situation is. Uh, and that's a vital thing. Titus has a similar issue. Let me look through those Titus lists. You see some of the similar things. Let me read through those. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, you, so this is why I left you in Crete, verse 5, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus is the one appointing the elders here. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. That above reproach shows up twice. In Titus's list, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But just on those kind of character lists, you notice it's a lot of similarities. If you compare them, you say, well, I can see some overlap here, but they're not the same. Paul is not working off of this kind of administrator's checklist of the things that I've got to get through them. He is offering wisdom to say, here's what a person who is above reproach looks like that would make sense in your cultural context. Here are the issues that you're fighting with Titus. Here are the issues you're fighting with Timothy. Here's what a person looks like. And there's some similarities, but they're not the same because this is not a checklist. Now, verse 6 is the trouble spot in Titus. 
That's the one that I think has done, really, pastorally, we do a lot of harm to people through the years. Because what he does there is he says something that sounds similar, but has been translated very differently through the years. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of what? One wife, the, the man of, of, of one woman, same kind of language. But, and his children are, and then your translations are going to go two different directions. Mine says, uh, the ESV says, uh, my children are believers, and then footnotes uh, the alternative reading that children are faithful. Now, what's going on there? Well, that word, pistos, simply means faithful, faith or believe. Who are they faithful to? The old translations, if you look at King James, they would use the term faithful. A lot of the newer translations will use faithful. In the middle, there were a whole bunch of them that started using the term believing. Well, what it would do then is then Paul is saying something different to Titus than he's saying to Timothy. To Timothy, he tells them, look at their household and, and look how they manage their household. Um, what does he say, verse 4 in 1 Timothy 3? He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So his children become a reflection of the elder in terms of their character. If they're under control of their household, then you say, I can trust this guy to be and, and, you know, leading the church or shepherding the church. If the children are wild and crazy and show no respect for the father, that should be a reflection of their capacity to be in that position of, of caretaking or shepherding the church. If the word in Titus 1.6 means faithful, then Titus is saying the exact same thing. If anyone is above reproach, the husband and one wife and his children are faithful. Faithful to who? Logically, faithful to the father, respecting the house. Uh, they are respectful children and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, which is terms related to the relationship of the father to his household. If you interpret that or translate that believing, um, I think you wind up saying something that at times can be almost heretical because what you're saying there is that the measure of whether a person can be an elder of the church is whether or not their children have been converted. Um, and so what that says is that the, the way that I shepherd my children provides a guarantee one way or the other on the outcome that it produces in the lives of my children. That's just simply not the case. And I think we've actually done a lot of harm to folks through the years when we've pushed this kind of odd translation on folks that we take folks who are, if anyone, for folks here, we've got several, their kids are wayward, kids have rejected the faith. This is one of the most painful things that people are dealing with. And then we're turning around and saying, well, because that's happened, this is a vital determinative of judgment on your character as a father. It's saying something that I think is, well, just frankly, it's just ungodly. Um, but in terms of the translation, it would seem quite odd to me. That's an understatement. But it seems odd to me that Paul would be saying one standard to Timothy and a wholly different and much harder standard to Titus. It's much more logical, and I think I go with the older translations and, and some of the newer ones to say it makes more sense that this term is faithful that he's talking about. Again, the character of the person, the professional, the personal, the public life of the elder candidate testifies to their character. What Paul is inviting in both cases is to look at their whole life, look at how they interact in their family, look at how they interact in their home, look at how they interact in the community, look at how they interact with every way that you know, all the relationships they have, and measure that character. 
deacons plus. Now here's the plus, because there's a couple other things that he talks about that aren't there for deacons. One is in verse 2. talks about the ability to teach. He says it there at the, that's the phrase that he uses at the end of verse 2, able to teach. Well, what is he talking about? Well, it seems that one of the vital ministries of the elder is the ministry of teaching and preaching. You'll see that just two chapters later in chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, let the elders who care for, uh, care well for the church be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Well, what's he saying there? Well, it's actually, verse 18, something that warms my heart, because what he's modeling there is he's talking about there are folks who are preaching and teaching in the church and are being paid to do so. It just fills me with such gladness. Um, that, that it's a good thing. Paul is celebrating that you pay some people to teach and preach for you. Um, and here in this church, it is the elders that are doing that work. Now, that gets into an issue that I don't want to spend too much time on, but that's just Church of Christ has an odd history with this. So in Churches of Christ, some ministers are elders, some are not. Some churches, you say it's quite normal. Some churches, it's the exception. Some churches, they will say it can never happen. Why does that happen? Well, it happens because, frankly, if you look at the 1800s, there was a lot of confusion about what we're here to do in this preaching ministry. Some of us, they call them evangelists, and they actually worked kind of like the evangelists did, moved from town to town. In fact, sometimes they would fire them so fast, they would be like evangelists because they'd travel constantly. Um, but there's this movement where they're considered evangelists. Really, what it's about in this much, much deeper, longer discussion, is the concern of the early churches of Christ was that, what we're dealing here with the issue of plural elders, that you do not have one person in charge. That where they were coming from, out of the Presbyterian tradition in the late 18th century, the practice in those particular presbyteries in Pennsylvania and actually in Scotland as well, was to commonly have a single pastor who was the preaching pastor who then ran the church. They didn't want that, so they wanted a plural eldership. But here in Timothy, for Paul, as he, as he speaks to Timothy, he is seeing elders doing the primary work of teaching and preaching. That's one of the things they need to be able to do. Now, some are focusing on that ministry. Some elders don't focus in the ministry of preaching and teaching here who are laboring in preaching and teaching, but they all have the ability to do so. Teaching and preaching in Paul are the primary ways of guiding the church. That's a first hint that we've kind of blown up this concept of elder as board of directors. That the primary way that an elder is guiding the church is the ministry of teaching. And that, I'm going to talk more about what that looks like. It is not simply, they didn't have Sunday school then. So that's not talking about lectures. They're really, the only kind of lecture they'd have in the normal life of the church is the ministry of preaching. Actually, and some would debate whether or not how much of that was a lecture. There were a lot of people giving feedback during the sermons then. But there's this sense of teaching that is a vital center of what the elders did. Um, Titus 1, I think, explains that another way. It helps us see. In Titus 1, what does it say? It talks about verse 9, that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. 
False teaching is a live issue in both Timothy and Titus. It's a live issue in their churches. And what they're doing here, the elder is the one who has a solid handle on the faith, a solid handle on the doctrine. So they, one, they can perceive false teaching and help people instruct them, this is the way of faith. Teaching is right at the center. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a text, I don't want to read it, I'm pushing over time, but I think it's a text that we often read of appropriately to, see, to talk about the, the high view of the Word of God, but ultimately that view of the inspiration of Scripture is to shape the men here, there, the leaders, to be shaped by the Word of God. So the first uh, requirement that's not there for deacons is that they're able to teach, and the second is that they are able to shepherd. That's, I've tried to avoid using the term lead as much as possible because, again, when we hear lead, we're thinking of board of directors. Biblical, uh, the spiritual leadership of an elder just looks different than corporate America. 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, which is something similar to what he says about deacons, they need to manage their household well, how, though, will he care for God's church? It is the ministry of caring for God's church that is this vital center of what elders do. Verse uh, 17, it's uh, chapter 5, let the elders who rule well or care for, that's a, a bad translation to use the word rule. It's not the word RK, which is rule, large and in charge, but to care for or to shepherd. Let those who do that well be considered worthy of double honor. The ability to shepherd. First Peter 5.2, he talks about them shepherding the flock. That's that work of Sometimes we've used administration. I think it's a misleading term. It does not serve us well because their ability is, along with the ability to teach, it is the ability to shepherd. Um, Acts 6, it is the apostles, I think, following that model, if those are the forerunners of deacons, they are tending to prayer and to the ministry of the word while the deacons, the servants, are administering the ministry of the church, that ability to shepherd. The third requirement is that they are mature in their faith. First Timothy says it this way in verse 6. He says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit. The concern about arrogance uh, leads him to say that, that the elder must be someone who is mature in their faith. The deacon is somebody who is kind of solidly convicted. The deacon can be much younger. It would be very abnormal to see a 20-something elder it would be very normal to see a 20-something deacon. But there are things that are expected, there's requirements of these elders that are simply not there for deacons because the work is different. They're doing different things. The fourth requirement, and this, I'll try to give you a, a brief overview of this, but this is more controversial, which is that elders also are all men. Now, that may surprise you with what I said last week. I, I think de- the, in the scriptures, the deacons in 1 Timothy are both men and women. I think that's what he's modeling for us. In Acts 16, I think there is an example of a woman serving as deacon, but that's not true for men, uh, not true for elders. Elders are men. They are certainly all men in, here in 1 Timothy and Titus. And that's everything about that description suggests they are men. But that's not really the basis for why elders should continue to be men. There is something here. What I'd be looking for in 1 Timothy 3 is a prohibition. If all he's saying is he's describing all this and it just happens to be that he's assuming they're all men, well, that's Scripture being silent. And where Scripture's silent, there's freedom. So unless there's some prohibition about women serving as elders, then they should be able to serve. But he does that. 
in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, there is an actual prohibition. What does he say in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, that is one of the most debated verses in all of the New Testament, and I can't exhaust all of it today, but there's things related to this issue that I want you to focus on. First, um, that, that, that you read this text <coughs> and <coughs> that you are looking for some kind of transcendent principle. This is still a letter. So when I look at this letter, I say, okay, is, is, is this something that's applying to us? How does it apply to us? What is it that's kind of lasting there are ways in which verse 11 and 12 is clearly talking about something in a particular context. If you go back and read the beginning of 1 Timothy 2, he's talking about this charge or this need for the people of the church to live quietly, quit, live quiet lives among the people. And so don't rock the boat. Do what you can to live at peace with your neighbors. And what follows is a whole lot of instructions about how they can live at peace with their neighbors. And then in the midst of that, you have this thing about the, the quietness of women. Interestingly enough, that there may be an actual cultural move here. That in the synagogues, it was common practice in the first century for men and women to have a very live dialogue with the speaker. Women were allowed to speak up and argue and push back and debate. And so there was this very live give and take, a Q&A period in the teaching of the Jewish synagogue. It was not so in most practices in uh, the Greco-Roman world. And some have suggested that what's happening here is as these churches are coming, Jew and Gentile are coming together, that practice of the Jewish synagogue, some are carrying that over into Christian worship there, and it's not settling well in the Greco-Roman culture. And so Paul here is kind of, kind of putting a kibosh on some of that, saying, let's just settle this, let's live at peace with one another. Now, if that's all it was, then it would suggest it's just... For its time, there was a particular issue, and he's calling them to just live peaceably for now. And we would move on and say, well, our culture is very different. But that's not the foundation that he rests in, and this is what persuades me. When he says, verse 12, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, a lot of folks have rested on that word I. That this is just Paul giving his opinion. But what he finds, what he grounds this in is not Greco-Roman culture and relationships and being at peace, but in creation itself. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And verse 15 is probably the toughest text in all the New Testament. And I'm not going to touch that one. You can talk to me privately if you want to figure that one out. But it's a challenge. But it's not really hitting on our point today. Um, but what he does is he grounds this restriction for the role of women in the church in creation, not culture. And so a lot of this goes back to how we read Genesis 1 through 3. What's going on there? And I just would offer a suggestion. What's happening here, Genesis 1 through 3, I took my stab at it back in the spring to try to understand what, what is happening there. In Genesis 1 through 3, in the creation of Adam and Eve, Adam is presented as a kind of ruler uh, and as he rules over this garden, Eve comes along as helper, completer. That vision of helper is not a, you know, a, an insulting term. That's the same term that's used for God at times. But Eve is meant to be his helper, his completer. And what happens in the temptation is that the serpent is leading a kind of rebellion. 
The animal kingdom is rebelling against Adam's authority. Um, Ad, the serpent is leading Eve to rebel against Adam's authority. And all three of them are rebelling against God's authority. That there's a sense of, of unwinding that place. And so Eve's deception or Eve's sin was to usurp the role of being the interpreter of God's word. Adam's sin was to fail, to be passive in failing to steward that role. And in a sense, here, what Paul is offering is the church, like marriage, we can look at Ephesians 4 sometime, but the church is meant to be a picture of a kind of restored Garden of Eden. That when elders, when men are shepherding the church well, and women are modeling submission to that shepherding guide, they are showing the way the, the relationship between Adam and Eve was supposed to work. It's almost like a typology that's happening in the church, that we are modeling a restored vision of the Garden of Eden and how we relate by having elders in that role, uh, having men in the role of elders and women modeling a kind of submission for us. That's the best I can do to try to explain in short what's happening there, why elders are men here, and I think should be men today. But where I want to end are the three directions that you can think of and look um, as elders. There are some of you, I have really three groups I'm wanting you to think about. There's some here that are going to be asked to serve, and you're going to want to refuse, and you should say yes. There are some of you that are going to be asked to serve, and you should say no. And the church, the rest of us, are trying to understand who those people should be. And I don't have a divine word from the Lord to say who that list is. But there's three pieces of advice I'd give to you as we look at Scripture here in 1 Timothy and Titus. First, three directions that an elder should look. First, look at the back of your eyelids. The first ministry of the shepherd, the first ministry of the elder is prayer. In James 5, there's a picture of the elders who are being invited when you're sick to invite the elders to pray over you, to anoint you with oil. The ministry of prayer is one of the vital centers of the identity of the elder. I knew an elder one time that challenged his own eldership to say we should only meet for prayer, for no other reason. And it helped them kind of rethink how they organized themselves so that when they were gathering together, the only reason they were gathering together was for prayer. When the amen was said, they left. They found a different way to run the church. It was actually a really healthy kind of conversation to have. But they are shepherds of prayer. Uh, the mission before us as a church is always beyond our power. And it is in prayer that we will look in the right direction. For elders, be shepherds of prayer. For the church, invite your elders to be that by inviting them to pray for you. Go to them with your prayer needs more than you go to them with your complaints. Invite them to pray for you. Second, shepherds, Look at your Bible. Be shepherds and stewards of the word. To be an effective teacher of the word, you have to be a student of the word. Um, it is okay when that person comes to you as an elder and asks for advice or is struggling with some issue, and you answer, I don't know. And one of the greatest things you will do for them is when you say, let's open the Bible together and search. When you invite somebody to mentor them. You will be mentoring them when you invite them to open scripture with you and you search together to understand what God's word has to say on a particular issue. If you're a person willing to say, I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to search scripture, then, then consider saying yes. And if you're a person who's arrived, who has all the answers, who's got it all figured out, 
don't say yes. Because you will do a great harm to that same person when they come to you and you give some glib or cavalier or unconsidered answer and they get cast aside by one of the shepherds of their church. Be a shepherd of the word. Be a shepherd in how you are yourself a student of the word. And the third thing I would suggest is to look at the people. Be a shepherd that is nurturing disciples. If you're really excited about being an elder because you get to meet with other elders and have lots of meetings, don't do this. But if you get excited about the idea of nurturing faith among your people, that's exciting. And that's something worth considering. Consider shepherding as a way of being a guardian. Unload the administration. Let's get lots and lots of deacons that handle all the administration of the church. Look to the elders as ambassadors of truth. So church, don't go to them with your complaints about the building. Answer their phone call. Return the message that they leave and be willing to let them into your life. Let them be willing to nurture your faith. The shepherd, the elder, can be one of those spokesmen, an ambassador for Christ that can speak truth into your life as you live in a world that speaks lies to you every single day. Our calling as a church, go back to where we were at the beginning last week, our calling as a church is to be ambassadors for Christ by calling and nurturing disciples. That's what we're doing. We're in the business of disciple-making. As we go through this season of calling officers, of elders and deacons, use this season to serve that goal. Let's remind ourselves of the mission that we're on, to call and nurture disciples and call men as elders and call deacons who will help us serve that end. Let's pray. God, I ask for your grace here in this season as we go through this process of calling and appointing elders and deacons. I pray for wisdom. I pray for grace for one another. And God, I pray you will be raising up people to serve in these positions that will help advance your kingdom here at Cardinal Drive and in Rolling Meadows. In Christ's name, amen.